And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Oh, real man. Love is, is love. too weak a word. Stay back. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. I did as you Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to... Parasite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 205 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording is 11.04 a.m. on August 2nd, 2020. Here to join me today, I have Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. Dan Baer. Good morning. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And welcome back to the main show, Ryan C. Showers. Hello, everyone. It's been too long. Way too long. Uh, years? No, not years. <laughs> Feels like years. But months. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, 2020 is just going slower for all of us in general. And let's face it, when all is said and done, we'll probably look back on 2020 as a 14-month-long film year anyway. So, you know... <laughs> Time is irrelevant uh, for all of us. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Christopher Nolan will make that uh, perfectly clear when Tenet finally, suddenly, maybe, hopefully, I don't know, releases. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, but there's a lot to talk about this week. Obviously, more news on Tenet. Surprise, surprise. It seems like we're getting news on that every other day. Uh, but also big news in the film festival world, which we'll get to. And also... The film industry as a whole, a groundbreaking deal between AMC and Universal. We'll talk about that. We'll give reactions to two trailers this week for Kajillionaire and Misbehavior. And we're also going to go over the polls, answer your questions. Should be a fun show here today. Let's start off first and foremost, though, with what everyone has been watching at home. Let's kick it off first with Dan Baer. Oh, my. Um, well, so I watched two things that you can catch podcast reviews for. You can catch our retrospective podcast review of Interstellar, which I still like but don't love. Uh, and you can catch yesterday's podcast review of the new release Summerland, which I unreservedly, unabashedly adore. Um, and other than that, I've watched um, a few upcoming releases that I cannot talk about, so yay. <laughs> <laughs> It's always a weird feeling when that happens, right? It's like, I, I saw these things, I can't tell you yet, but I promise I'll let you know, maybe next week. <laughs> like, I'll promise, or maybe I won't, because they weren't so good. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's hear now from Ryan. Well, so, since I have um, been working from home um, for the past couple of months, I've been able to basically have something on in the background all day long while I work, um, work on my class, my classes and, um, work doing do my actual work for the university I'm employed by. So I've watched a lot. Um, for instance, there was one day I watched the upside of anger, Beale street, golden eye, million dollar baby and doubt in the same day. Oh, so wow. I've been able to like mix in like a lot of like TV show fun and movie fun. And, um, I've been watching a lot of horror movies 
um like that's, that's actually the perfect thing to have on in the background like you know junky like 80s horror movies while, while i work all day long um because i'm very excited for scream 5 so that's pumping me up um but as for like 2020 releases um i watched black is king um this week um which is Beyonce's um, Disney Plus uh, film that was released. Um, it's super timely. It's visually out of this world. Um, it's not as groundbreaking as Lemonade, um, the, her visual album from 2016, which I thought was just a masterpiece. Um, but it's definitely a step up from her uh, Lion King album she released um, last year. So the imagery alone is enough to... Um, to sit through this and it's really smart of disney plus to release this film after such you know roaring success with hamilton um, a few weeks ago i totally agree and i think the choreography especially in it was pretty out of this world uh, from what i've seen so far as well visually i mean you want to talk about having something on in the background ryan i mean damn <laughs> damn yes exactly <laughs> josh parm so I've uh, actually caught up with quite a number of things throughout the week. Um, I did also see Interstellar. Uh, I rewatched that for our podcast review, and I was definitely the most enthusiastic person on that sh- uh, show for that movie. And I'm very proud to continue being one of the only enthusiastic voices in our group for it. Um, I highly recommend people check that episode out, too. I think we had a really great conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, then I also saw this newer movie uh, called Ghosts of War. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. No, I have not. Yeah, it's a, it's a new horror movie that takes place during World War II, and it's basically soldiers in a haunted house. Um, or at least that's like the setup of it. Uh, the movie actually goes in some very weird directions that the trailer essentially did not communicate, which I found somewhat refreshing. Um, The movie doesn't come together all that well in the end, but it at least was something that I didn't expect was going to happen. And that kind of held my interest all the way through. So it's not a great success, but it was a lot more interesting than I think the initial premise made it out to be. So that, that was interesting at least. Um, and then I saw this other newer movie called Vivarium, which... Uh, oh, I heard has, of this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like... I would kind of describe it like um, Charlie Kaufman liked. Um, and it's another one that doesn't really come together all that well in the end. Uh, it's got some really interesting ideas going on, but... Um, yeah, it's it's not that great. Jesse Eisenberg is in it too, and he is woefully miscast. Um, hmm. I, he is not good in the movie, and I usually like him, but it's got some interesting ideas. Doesn't come together all that well, but it's on Amazon Prime right now, so it's easily watchable. And speaking of Amazon Prime, the other movie that I did see that's from this year is a documentary called Rewind. Mm. Oh Lord. Yeah. And what's funny about this one actually is I did not know really anything about this movie. I'd heard that people really liked it, including members of our team, but I really didn't investigate that much of it, to be honest with you, before I saw it. And it it is a it's a heavy movie. Yep. (laughs) I got to say it's very well done, though. Um, But the subject matter is not fun. 
Uh, it is very serious. Um, it kind of actually reminded me of another documentary I saw years ago called Capturing the Freedmen's, which I don't know if anybody here has seen that movie. I have. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, both in filmmaking, storytelling, and subject matter. Um, and it was really good. Uh, like I said, it's not a fun movie, but if you are interested in some very uh, emotional stories about serious topics, uh, I would still recommend it. I think it's a very well-done achievement. Yeah, I think it's still my favorite documentary I've seen this year uh, simply because of how impactful it was. It really hit me hard. Yeah, cool. yeah, definitely. Josh, you know, I have to say, I, I really respect your um, uh, your principles about um, standing up for um, Interstellar, which has um, gotten, which its reputation has really um, been, it's, I feel like it's constantly in flux. Like there's a lot of people who really love it. A lot of people who, who find it to be flawed. I'm somebody who I, I liked it a lot when it first came out and I rewatched it recently and um, lot, liked it a lot less. Um, but I really applaud you for sticking to your guns and not following in any bandwagon because I've done that um, with a lot of unpopular movies um, this decade. So um, good for you. Well, well, thank you, Ryan. I mean, and I think that's the great thing about Interstellar, too, is that it's a movie that is constantly in dialogue, it seems, with people as years go by, which I think only makes it that much more interesting of a movie. I agree with that. And I think that its reputation has actually, uh, you know, increased more heavily in terms of people favoring it as a result, because it is a movie that I think when you go back and rewatch it uh, over time, one's uh, perception of it could change for better or for worse. And in terms of it being better, it just makes the defense of it uh, that much greater. So, I mean, let me tell you, try just try, try saying something negative about Interstellar on film Twitter, for example, and the defenders will come for you. <laughs> you know, we'll see, I did. I so I rewatched it even before. I, I wasn't a part of your review, but I rewatched it um, a few weeks ago just um, because I was in an Inception type of a mood, and I just threw that on after. And um, I so I tweeted out my thoughts, and I got um, I got a good mix of both really positive and really negative um, response to my thoughts and in general. So yeah, um, it, it's it's a very interesting film to talk about. Absolutely. All right, Michael Schwartz. You know, after two weeks of watching nothing, this was a good week. You're going to like this, Matt Neglia. I watched three movies this week. Were they new movies? Uh, one of them was. Okay, we're, we're making some progress. Yeah, some progress. <laughs> so uh, let's go out of order here. The new movie that I saw, the 2020 release, I caught up with Greyhound. Oh, oh yeah. What'd you think of that? It was very well done. The sound is out of this world. The sound is some of the best of this year by far. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I hope that gets, I would say, a sound editing nomination if this were last year. But now it's going to be a best sound nomination because it's just a condensed one category. But yet, yeah, I totally hope that gets in because it's really magnificent work there. The movie itself, it is short and it's tight and it does one thing and it does that one thing really, really well. So I can't really say anything beyond that. Like, it's not a character piece, really. It's just, you know, battle and visuals and text. And that's all really interesting stuff. So I think it set out to accomplish a goal and did that one goal very, very well. Yeah, I, a part of me wondered, you know, if they had injected a little bit more character work into it and made it a bit longer, if it would have been... You know, maybe Harold as a new um, classic, uh, you know, Navy film in the way of something like uh, Das Boot, for example. But to your point, the fact that it is so short, I think it's less than 90 minutes long. I, I, I checked when the credits started. It was mm -hmm. at the 80 minute mark. 
Yeah, it, it just gets in and gets out like so efficiently. And it does everything that it needs to do. You're 100% right with that. Uh, I have to admit, I was a little low on it at first, but I got to give credit to the score, um, actually, for that movie. Uh, because the score, like, kind of harkens back to, like, the early 90s, like, style of film scoring, where it's very rousing and it really kind of uplifts you when you're watching it. And I, I got to admit, it kind of it kind of made me like the movie just, just that much more, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, that type of patriotism really gets to me. So, you know, seeing, like, you know, the allies fighting against, you know, it, it's basically good versus bad. That's what the movie is, good versus bad in the water. Right. But, you know, just that sense of, you know, unity and patriotism. And it, it was really great to see. So I enjoyed watching that. And having Tom Hanks uh, never hurts. Yeah, absolutely. He's great. And he read the movie. Not that there's much in the way of dialogue there. They say the word rudder about 50 times. But, um, <laughs> you know, every time they said rudder, this is where my mind goes. I think of mutter, 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 mutter from uh, Merrily We Roll Along. So, of course, there's mm-hmm. always like a Sondheim connection to be made. But like, <laughs> check the rudder, check the rudder, check the rudder. It's like over and over again. But hey, you know, it's great action and it was an enjoyable enjoyable movie. So that was the 2020 release. Then I went to see a movie that was new to me. Uh, came out 20 years ago. I've been diving into movies from 2000 that I hadn't seen in a long time or just never got around to. And I crossed a movie off my list from a director who I've seen much of their work, but not this one. And that is What Lies Beneath from Robert Zemeckis. Oh, one of my favorite movies. Well, I didn't like it. I was going to say, I I was like, Michael did not like this. Well, you know, there's no accounting for taste. (laughs) I think Michelle Pfeiffer's good. And I think it has some interesting set pieces. I think like the last 15 minutes are really engaging. But uh, I just kept waiting for it to go somewhere. And then when it finally got somewhere, I was like, okay, I'm ready to check out of this thing. That's one I would be very curious to revisit because I remember at the time, uh, liking it but not wholly loving it and i i have to admit i barely remember it to this day so i wonder what it would be like to revisit that one apparently zemeckis filmed it he filmed Mm -hmm. it as he was waiting for tom hanks to gain weight and grow his beard for castaway yeah makes sense i rewatched it um, a few weeks ago and i so i love michelle pfeiffer and i love horror movies um but i didn't love it when i first saw this 10 years ago but um i thought it was boring back then um, but I rewatched it and knowing where it was going and seeing like the, the build up, I absolutely ate every second of it up. Like it's, it's such, it's such a great movie. Like I, I want to rewatch it again, even having just seen it just two weeks ago. Um, but I also think it's hilarious that Michael said the title and Dan and I both like channeled the like gay icons, like <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer energy. We're like, yes, you know? Yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad it has its fans. Just uh, just wasn't for me, but I'm glad I saw it because I you know like to see movies from that era and you know check off lists uh, from directors I like. So you know got to say I I was there and did that. I also like seeing too like Robert Zemeckis just like I don't feel like he gets the credit that he deserves for being as uh, brave as he is sometimes with the stories that he takes on. Like he never. Um, okay, maybe with his animated uh, films, uh, with the motion capture, he did repeat himself. But I felt like in a lot of ways, he was like a filmmaker that was never repeating himself for a very long time. And he was always trying something new and different and finding ways to like yeah. push himself as a director. And What Lies Beneath was like his foray into, you know, domestic thriller slash horror to a certain extent. And I, I mean... It may not fully work, but it's like I admire the fact that at least he's trying different genres all the time, you know? 
I think one of the things that I really love about that movie, especially for Zemeckis, is that it's so stripped down and pared back. Like, it's not really a lot of flashy work like uh, most of his movies are. It's just straightforward thriller domestic drama and he gets great performances out of Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford honestly although that's mostly a result of just perfect casting mm. all right Michael what's the last one yeah and the last movie this is actually one of my favorite movies it's a documentary actually but you know who said documentaries can't be among your favorites documentary from 2009 Dan Bayer I know you love this movie it is every little step <laughs> one of my favorites yes uh, i'd seen this many times before but i i watched something called stars in the house every night which is seth rudetsky and his husband uh james wesley uh raising money for the actors fund by having like tv reunions or broadway cast reunions or talking about saving the arts just anything entertainment centric and they had the most heartwarming and enjoyable reunion of the original cast of a chorus line Pretty much everyone is still living short of Kelly Bishop and Priscilla Lopez. They were all there talking about their experience doing a chorus line back in the mid-70s and what the experience meant to them and how revolutionary it was. And for me, a chorus line is like one of the greatest pieces of art I've ever seen. It just you know, holds such a special place in my heart and my memory, and I just love everything about it. So after watching nearly two hours of the original cast reunited, I decided to go back and watch Every Little Step, which I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And what's so interesting about this documentary is that it's set to follow all these uh, actors auditioning for the 2006, was it? Yeah, 2006 revival, I think, of A Chorus Line on Broadway. It was the first time it had been done since the original production. But in filming these actors going to you know casting calls and you know being selected for the parts at the end, it follows the same track as what A Chorus Line is about. So it's using the model of the show to cast the new revival. But then it's also intercut with interviews with Donna McKegney and Bayork Lee and Marvin Hamlish and Bob Avian. But then you also get uh, tape footage of Michael Bennett in the original session that then inspired the show and what it's all about. So it's doing so many things, working on so many different levels and doing it all so well. And to me, it's like the ultimate piece of what theater is before you get the show on Broadway. I love it so much and would watch it again in a heartbeat. Okay, so uh, for this week... Uh, as everyone uh, said before, rewatch Interstellar for our 2014 retrospective. You can hear my thoughts on that. Same with uh, Summerland, not a 2014 retrospective, but that was our main review for this week. You can hear my thoughts on that one as well. Um, I watched uh, About Endlessness, which is a movie that premiered, um, I believe it premiered at Cannes last year. Uh, it was Cannes or... Berlin, Venice. It premiered last year. Roy Anderson. Um, my first experience with Roy Anderson, actually. Um, <laughs> I texted Dan Bear while watching it because I was like, I feel like Dan has seen Roy Anderson films before. And all I asked him was, is the entire movie like this? Um, I'm not going <laughs> to reveal anything more because um, they don't want me talking about this. I don't know why, because there's already reactions and reviews out for it. But um, yeah. You know, they're waiting for the release, so I'll, I'll withhold more information on that until later. I will say I saw that at TIFF last year, and it was one of my favorite experiences because it was a full, like, packed theater. And that was when it was like, I love Roy Anderson. He's one of my favorite filmmakers currently working. And 
that was like being in a full theater of people to see his latest film was like, uh, like, what is happening right now? (laughs) (laughs) I watched a documentary called Red Penguins um, that I also can't talk about still, uh, but that's a documentary is being released by Universal, um, looking to be one of their uh, Oscar contenders for the best documentary feature race this year. And I also watched the new David Ayer film against my better judgment called The Tax Collector. Uh, Not allowed to talk about that one either. Mm. So I'll leave that one uh, a mystery until later on. (laughs) What a mystery. (laughs) (sighs) Let's just say every now and then the movie Devil comes to collect. (laughs) Well, I can't imagine uh, that a David Ayer movie would possibly uh, give you those kinds of feelings, Matt. It's really an, unimaginable to me. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers Podcast as well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners, so if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talking about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh, no, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae shut up, here. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I wonder shut who up. the cat can God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. First topic of discussion here for this week. Let's talk about the fall film festivals. Let's talk about some of the news that was announced. Um, So last week, we got the Venice uh, Film Festival lineup. Uh, This week, we got the Toronto International Film Festival lineup. And lots of information, some confusion still about how the festival is really going to go down. But ultimately, it's going to be a combination of physical screenings, drive-ins, digital screenings. There will be no pre- uh, in-person press and industry screenings or media events like red carpet or press conferences. They're all going to be virtual. Uh, but looking at the list here, uh, there was, I mean, it's interesting because it's like, you know, kind of like what we all said previously where we knew that there weren't going to be any big movies at this year's uh, TIFF. We knew that heading in. But I think if you dig deep enough and you look at some of the movies that are listed here and like take a look at some of the descriptions on the TIFF website, there are some there are some that definitely jump out at me. Uh, Dan, I'm sure you probably did a bit of a dive with it. Josh, same. Uh, yeah. You know, was there anything mm-hmm. that really like caught your eye? There were a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> that that caught my eye. Um, there's one, and I'm looking it up right now to uh, so I can get the exact name of it. But it's a sort of sci-fi horror-ish movie uh, starring Chloe Grace Moritz. Oh, oh, oh! The yes. Shadow in the Cloud. Mm-hmm. Which, like anything that shows a Tiff Midnight Madness. Um, there's a certain cachet that comes with that, and that looks like it could be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, a movie that was not previously on my radar, although I don't know why, called Concrete Cowboy, um, directed by Ricky Staub, and that has Idris Elba and um, one of the kids from Stranger Things in it. 
that looks like it could be really good. And of course, anyone who is a big fan of documentaries would likely be excited by the presence of Frederick Wiseman's latest City Hall. There are a lot of other in, more interesting things like Mira Nair's most recent film is playing there. Closing night film. Yeah. And uh, there's another fun Midnight Madness movie called Get the Hell Out. That yes, saw that. A lot of fun, too. <laughs> I saw that there's going to be uh, directorial debuts from Regina King and Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Regina King's film, especially uh, One Night in Miami, has a lot of people very excited. Um it's based on a stage play um, that has Kingsley Ben Adir, Ellie uh, Gorey, uh, Aldous Hodge, and Leslie Odom Jr. And they're playing Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. And that, that alone got me pretty excited. <laughs> I, was, I was like, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also, like I said before, uh, Halle Berry's uh, directorial debut where she's uh, playing an MMA fighter. That movie's called Bruised. In terms of like other festival like holdovers, I saw that uh, the father uh, will be playing at TIFF, which you guys know I've been raving about since I saw it at Sundance. Mm-hmm. I think Anthony mm-hmm. Hopkins' performance is arguably top three greatest things he's ever done in a in a career as long and as distinguished as he's had. Like that's really saying something. But I really firmly believe so it. Forward to it and. Uh, Falling, directed by Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> Not my favorite film from Sundance. I was puzzled when I saw that it was supposed to play a can, and I'm even more puzzled once again that it's playing a tiff. And I I'm still puzzled that there were people that had positive reviews on it. I I, I don't know what movie those people saw, but hey. <laughs> I have a theory for that. I think I know why it's hitting these festivals. Okay. Because Vigo Mortensen, we don't really think of this, you know, here in the States. But internationally, he is like a huge, huge, huge star. Like, oh, sure. I get that. So even if it's a movie that's not very good, I think the fact that he's attached to it and is playing in these international festivals Mm -hmm. is just a way to sort of like honor him or, you know, show some recognition that he has new work. I I, I understand that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Looking over this list, the one um, movie that really jumped out at me that hasn't already been mentioned is Summer of 85, which is the new Francois Ozon film. And I'm always down for a new Ozon movie. And this looks like it would be really fun to watch, too. Well, that's good since there's one about every year or so. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we already knew that Ammonite uh, was supposed to also play at TIFF and it, it still is. We don't know what is going to happen, though, in terms of screening for press because um, they have announced that some movies won't screen for press. And I don't know what the deal is there. I think it has something to do. Probably maybe 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 the filmmakers have a say on this, you know, and uh, (laughs) well, if that's the case, then, uh, you know, Francis Lee has been very, very vocal about how he doesn't want people watching his film digitally. So. You know, regardless, it looks like we're going to see it this fall. You know, even if we're not at a festival, we'll be seeing it sometime before the end of 2020. I mean, it's neon, so it's going to be on Hulu regardless. Cameron Bally uh, this week was giving an interview and he said that this is the performance of Kate Winslet's career. I mean, that might be hyperbole, but, you know, if you have a festival and you have a movie like this and you're talking it up that much, you know, that could really be something. She's been due for a comeback for a while. The, that is a big statement. Like, I, I don't know if I, I believe it. Um, I think it could be one of her better performances. I just, I don't know. It's going to take a lot to top her career. I'm, I'm really excited for it, though. But I think, but I think also the thing about 
this uh, TIFF lineup, even though it's only 50 films, that what's really, really exciting to me is how much discovery there will be because you look at some of the yeah. directors that are listed. Um, a lot of the names are unrecognizable. There's a lot of films that aren't from the U.S. and are international. So, you know, this year, I think more than any other previously, people will be able to watch movies uh, completely blind without that kind of festival hype around it and hopefully emerge with an appreciation and also like with a sense of discovery that will catapult uh, some of these movies to uh, greater acclaim, hopefully down the road for award season, especially in regards to Best International Feature, which, you know, by now, at least we would have can to uh, tell us some information about that. But we've got nothing to go off of at the moment. So I'm hoping some contenders will emerge uh, from TIFF this year for that. And then the big announcement kind of revolving around not just TIFF, but also Venice and New York Film Festival is Searchlight Pictures' Nomadland, starring Francis McDormand, uh, Francis McDormand, David Strathairn, and written, directed, edited, produced by by uh, Chloe Zhao, who is going to be uh, doing the Eternals uh, next year as well. So, if this movie is a big success on the awards uh, trail, which a lot of people have been telling me. Uh, this is definitely one of the top 10, five, you know, it's 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 one of the big ones to definitely watch out for. Um, it will be a great lead in for Chloe Zhao uh, heading into Eternals, I think, exposure wise. And also too, coming off of the writer, uh, very well received movie by a lot of people. I think I think there's a lot of uh, anticipation surrounding this. And how can you go wrong when you also have Frances McDormand leading your movie, right? Yeah, and, you know, she's obviously coming off the second Oscar. So, you know, there's still a lot of goodwill for her. And this seems like another great performance. I'm excited to see David Strathairn back in the conversation. You know, he was nominated seriously? 15 years ago for Good Night and Good Luck. And he's continued to put in really excellent work over the years, both on screen and on stage. He uh, comes to my area a lot, right in the suburbs, and does great theater work. Like he and Mary McDonald were terrific in the Cherry Orchard a few years ago here. So to see him just turning it out, I'd love to see him like the supporting actor conversation if it's good enough, because he's one of our finest character actors. Agreed. I think it definitely has that potential. I think that this movie, uh, you know, has already positioned itself as a best picture contender screenplay. It would be great if Chloe Zhao, you know, obviously pending that the movie, of course, is as fantastic as people say it is, can get into the director conversation. Uh, this is definitely, like I said, one to watch out for. It's going to be a big deal. And it's also um, going to be not just playing at uh, TIFF, but as I said before, it's also going to be having a simultaneous screening at the Venice International Film Festival. So it'll premiere simultaneously at both of those. And it's also been announced as the centerpiece selection for this year's New York Film Festival. Hopefully then, as a result, uh, regional film festivals later on will, you know, depending on the state and what the guidelines are uh, considering COVID, uh, we'll be able to pick it up and more people will get a chance to see it. But Searchlight has announced they are planning to release it uh, domestically and internationally in the theaters uh later in the fall after its uh premiere so well and the um not to discount the topic of the film um it's about um post great recession um you know uh, america and i think it's i think it's a perfect vehicle for Frances mcdormand she's the mm -hmm. type of actress who really needs the right role to just blow it out of the water um she's not somebody who can just flop in um any any a leading actress um, character. 
Um, but this seems like it's really suited to her. And um, I think Zoe, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Chloe um, Zhao is, um, it seems like the topic is really attuned to her sensibilities as a director. And also too now with the French Dispatch uh, being moved from 2020 altogether, barring a release in January, February, this is Searchlight's number one priority uh, for this award season. So you can expect the push to be pretty strong considering that they usually are always somehow involved in the award season conversation one way or another. I'm interested in how this compares to Hillbilly Elegy later this year. I think they're going to have some very interesting statements uh, working either in sync with or against each other in terms of talking about economics of the working class and you know how this country functions for some of its residents. It's going to be really interesting to watch. It's there. There's going to be a, a huge discourse where like it's going to be like a, a topic of like a whole pod, a whole podcast for us where the internet is like taking sides and um, really <laughs> comparing, contrasting these films. Like that's it's written on the wall. I agree with that simply because Ron Howard is known to be more of a studio commercial director. Chloe Zhao, um, obviously the stage in her career and with uh, this movie, from what I've been told, skewing very heavily in style to the writer, you're going to definitely have camps for sure of people who prefer one style of filmmaking versus another style of filmmaking. And I do think that you're both right. The films will be in constant conflict with each other probably throughout the entire season, unless if one of them completely bombs critically, then there is no competition at that point. My mm -hmm. guess is um, I feel like I feel like um, film Twitter is going to gravitate towards Nomadland where um, and they're going to be annoyed with Hillbilly Elegy um, for if it does gain traction with awards and um, critics, even if it doesn't, I, Hillbilly Elegy is the type of movie I could see um, doing better with awards bodies than with critics, and it's still passing through. Not like not as badly as Vice, but like in a Vice type of a way. Um, and I think I think there's definitely going to be some huge tension. I could see that. And at the end of the day, uh, that movie that movie will have the Amy Adams, Glenn Close stands rooting for it no matter <laughs> yeah. what. So. Right, which is why I'm not sure that everyone is going to have their knives out for it because everyone loves them and wants to see them win. Right. Well, everybody loved Amy Adams and Christian Bale, and um, Vice still was like was crucified. But Vice was, you know, deserving of it. it. Was about <laughs> other award season news for uh, this week. The Golden Globes uh, have opened up their eligibility window to be the same as the Oscars for the 21, uh, 2021 uh, ceremony on February twenty eighth. Sure, I'm 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 still not happy about this. <laughs> no, but what are you gonna do? Like as yeah. soon as the Oscars make that decision, if you are especially a major awards precursor, you're kind of forced to do the same thing. I have a question to ask though. I'm really curious to know what you all think, and especially um Josh and Dan, who are new uh critics group members this year. Would you prefer uh for any kind of end of year voting to take place? December 31st yes. or February 28th? <laughs> I would prefer it to be just at the end of the year. I think yeah. sticking with a calendar year makes sense. I get it. I, I get it for these bigger awards bodies because they are so closely tied to the Oscars and you kind of have to fall in line. It's just the way that the 
ecosystem is for them. But if you are yeah. part of a smaller group and can act more independently, I think that it's a good statement to say we are judging the movies that came out this year for which there are movies just because they aren't in theaters. And I think yeah. that it's up to those groups to say that, yes, we are going to just look at the year and not just follow the Oscars just because they are the Oscars. I also don't think that a lot of these movies will not be seen before the end of the year. You know, like they're going to screen by December for film critics and there's no reason why they shouldn't. I, I have to admit, I think I've, I, I think I've like reached the acceptance stage with this decision where because here's my okay so here's my thought process if i did end of year voting and it's december and i put together a top 10 list and you know i'm submitting ballots to various groups and so on and so forth right anything that comes out in january february do i count that for that year the following year even though it will have already received its uh award season push for the year prior I'm like coming around to the idea of just treating 2020 as a 14 month year and 2021 as a 10 month year. So Matt, I have to say, like, I think you just summed it up perfectly. I think if we try to go against the Oscars and the timeline and like the eligible films for the awards, the award shows, it will just become chaos, especially like in years, like into the future when we try to look back at this year, like I, I just think it's, uh, I think it, we should be like all for one, one for all. And unfortunately, the Oscars and the bigger award shows do guide all this. I, I, I respect what you guys have said um, about about the end of this year. I, I, I do think it would be, there would be more order if we, if we all just had the same collective mind. So like, you know, a movie that comes out, you know, in February that happens to win, let's just say Best Actress. Um, isn't, you know, it's not complicated when we talk about it in the future. I don't know. I think whatever the Oscars do is how we should align and all the other critics groups should align just for the sake of consistency. That's my long-held belief. I think we follow the pattern of the Oscars in everything we do. We're going to revisit this um, probably come October. I think we'll have more information around then because, you know, pretty soon critics groups do have to set their dates in motion and the studios will be looking towards those dates uh, for New York Film Critics Circle, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, that they need those wins to help propel certain films, uh, you know, into the conversation. So when they take place is going to be very, very important. So my guess is probably around October, we'll have um, a more firm answer about what's going on and we'll revisit the conversation uh, then. Piggybacking off of that other just news that was announced this week, and no surprise here, obviously, the Directors Guild of America announced that the 73rd awards ceremony will now take place on April 10th uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, this is aligned, obviously, with uh, the Oscars uh, taking place uh, late April. But the awards being handed out uh, 15 days uh, before the Oscar ceremony and one day difference from the final voting on the winners. So the DGA winner uh, will not play uh, a role in influencing uh, who votes for who for best director this year. It won't influence, but it'll still give us an idea of where the buzz is, I assume. Based on the nominees, yeah. Yeah. Although (laughs) what happened last year has certainly thrown a wrench into how much we can really (laughs) lean on the DGA 
uh, which I find to be exciting. Yeah. I mean, also, too, you know, remember, Bong was just such a hit last year on the campaign trail at all the parties. Everybody wanted to meet him. And we're not going to have that necessarily this year because of the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, all of that is true. But also somebody winning the Globe, the BAFTA and the DGA for director and, and losing the Oscar does not happen that frequently. And so whenever it does, it's like, oh, that's interesting. It's something to keep in mind next time when we talk about locks and best director. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, now, uh, we're going to move over to our first trailer discussion for this week, uh, which is for Misbehavior. Uh, Misbehavior is uh, starring Kira Knightley, Guga Mabafa-Raw, Jesse Buckley, Leslie Manville, uh, Greg Kinnear, a few others. It is uh, being released, uh, I believe, let me just make sure I got this right here, uh, September 7th, 2020. Uh, I think I think I got that date correct here. It's so hard to tell uh, basically everything that's going on with COVID, but it's already premiered in the UK. So there are people who have uh, gotten a chance to see this one. It follows the events of the 1970 Miss World competition, which saw the crowning of the first black competitor uh, played by Guga Mabafa-Raw here. Uh, let's take a look at the trailer for this one. Give some thoughts. Last year, 100 million people tuned in live to Miss World. More viewers than for the moon landings or the World Cup final. Beautiful, darling. Mum, don't. You and your sisters used to love playing this world. We also like to eat our own snot. We really believe beauty isn't just skin deep. The girls also have charm, grace, good deportment. Swimsuits. Miss World rehearsals are underway. I'm the first black South African to take part. I'm the first Miss Grenada. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Hope. The last time Bob guested on this show, he brought the winning girl home with him. <laughs> They're turning oppression into spectacle. Let's make a spectacle of our own. We'd infiltrate the theater. We've just been smoking and watching, like in a heist film. If I win, there will be little girls who might start to believe they have a place in the world. We're black. We're not going to be Ms. World. You don't own me. I don't want you to think I'm some kind of brute that doesn't consider the feelings of women. I consider feeling women all the time. Forget this. Tonight may be the start of something, Bob. This competition makes us compete with each other and makes the world narrower for all of us in the end. Why should any woman have to earn her place in the world by looking a particular way? <laughs> you don't. He doesn't. Why should we? This looks delightful. Absolutely. Yeah. It looks Great. like a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it certainly looks like a lot of fun. And it's nice to know that we have confirmation of what a movie created in a lab uh, specifically for Nicole Ackman looks like. <laughs> <laughs> we already had that this week with Summerland. So, you know, <laughs> I'm excited to once again, I know I keep saying this every time her name pops up, but I'm just so excited to see the continued rise of Jesse Buckley. Yeah. I mean, oh, everybody God, in this she's so good. I know. I'm so happy to see Kieran Knightley in something again and Gugu Mbatha-Ra, especially after her small but very affecting performance in Summerland. Like, I'm here for all of it. And I know I've said this before. I'm going to say this again. Kira Knightley, 
underrated, in my opinion. Very highly underrated. So and I'm glad this, this is going to be a VOD release. You know, this looks like something good to watch from home and, you know, not have to put our lives on the line to see it. It looks like it's going to be really enjoyable next month. To me, it rings like um, like Mrs. America, but with better racial politics. Um, one, <laughs> thing I wor- <laughs> one thing I worry about with the film is um, it does seem to like there is a, the structure is something that slightly worries me that it, there's a lot going on with different pockets and storylines. I hope that they can make it one cohesive um, narrative um, because in the trailer, the, um, it, it seemed very scattered. Well, uh, the screenwriters for this um, wrote Their Finest mm-hmm. and also, um, oh, well, uh, The Lady, <laughs> which was a Luc Besson <laughs> film. <laughs> their Finest great. is great. Their Finest yeah, is really I good. Really like their finest. I, I really like Their Finest as well. And I do think that the cast looks like a lot of fun here. I think that, you know, you having Keira Knightley in the, you know, lead role paired with Guga Mabafa Raw is a good combination that I'm excited to see. Once again, Jesse Buckley is also someone to continuously watch. And Leslie Manville, very reliable. Greg Kinnear, reliable. Keely Hawes, reliable. I mean, you have a lot of people here to kind of just round things out and make this, as Michael said, a nice, comforting, warm watch from home that, uh, you know, it's it's not going to light the world on fire by any means, but it will be an entertaining watch. And that's all that we need right now, I think, during this time. Hi, guys. I'm Dane. And I'm Daniel. And we're from the Movie Journey Podcast. Where we break down every movie from the IMDb Top 250 list, giving our own thoughts and reviews and any general discussion along the way. We're also home of the Pod V Pod, where we battle other podcasters in various movie games and drafts. We also do reviews of new releases, film tournaments, top five lists, and talk about everything else we've watched as well. We used to be the IMDb Journey Podcast, but since then, we've grown and matured with age. Yeah, if you don't believe us, why don't you listen to some more genuine testimonies? Oh, hey guys, I uh, I used to like the IMDb Journey podcast, but since then I've found something even better. It's the Movie Journey podcast. Oi, bro, I know I said the IMDb Journey podcast was a good show, but the Movie Journey podcast is so much better. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. You know, I used to think that nothing could be funnier than IMDb Journey, but I've now found my joy in Movie Journey podcast. The IMDb Journey podcast is nothing compared to the Movie Journey podcast. Absolutely love this podcast. <laughs> oh, amazing oh, testimonies once again. Absolutely legit and real. Of course. And if you still don't believe those testimonies, go ahead and check out the show for yourself by searching for the Movie Journey podcast. You can find us on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. So come along and join our journey. Let's move over now to the, the polls. Let's take a look at some of the uh, poll results for uh, last week, uh, which was, once again, due to the age of uh, COVID-19, poorly timed on my part, and I apologize about that. Um, I put up a poll asking everyone which was their favorite Russell Crowe uh, performance, and then minutes later, after I hit <laughs> send, um, it was announced that Unhinged had its date moved, so <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, but we do have a top 10 here. Uh, for uh, favorite Russell Crowe performances. Let's take a look and see what the MVP film community voted on. Okay. (laughs) So, number 10. Supporting performance in Boy Erased. He's really, really good in that. He is. That's his best work in years. 
Very natural, yeah. Number nine. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> Number nine is Les Miserables. <laughs> no. <Ew. laughs> oh, Shit. <Lord>. How? <laughs> How did we let this happen? <laughs> Trolls. <laughs> you let Tom people Hooper vote. voted many times. <laughs> uh, I hear that the next best theater um, people flooded the, the polls every day. Just, okay, the next best theater up. people have disowned that movie. Let's be very clear here. <laughs> Number eight, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Underrated movie. Underrated movie, but I don't think his performance is, like, amazing in that. No, it's yeah, not. We all it, know why he missed that nomination. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Number seven, Cinderella Man. Ooh, yeah, he's great in that. I agree. Good movie, too. I've actually never seen it. Really? Well, Me neither. Wow. wow. That actually I, shocks me, Michael. <laughs> yeah, Michael, you, it's something you would like. I actually just rewatched it before Judy because of the Zelliger factor. Um, and I really I really enjoyed it a lot. It's very emotionally affecting. Um, Ron Howard, I think, actually does a really, really good job directing it, especially some of the boxing scenes. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I didn't. When did I rewatch this? I think I rewatched this like four years ago or something like that. But um, I was very surprised at how well it still uh, held up. And Paul Giamatti was fantastic in it, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oscar nominee. Almost. I actually, I actually think this is the hottest Russell Crowe was uh, in Cinderella Man. I, I really thought <laughs> that. Yeah. You know, I, I read a report once that uh, I think it was Renee Zellweger said that she couldn't stand how his breath smelled during all their scenes <laughs> together. Anyway, I, I've never gotten that out of my head ever since I heard it. All right. Number six. His charismatic turn in 310 to Yuma. Great performance. That's good. Which I, I think is one of his most underrated performances. I think he's excellent yeah, in that. actually never seen that one either. Oh, he's really, really good in that, Michael. And uh, it's yeah. one of it's one of the best Westerns to come out like in the modern era, I think. Yeah, it's it's been on my list. And I James Mangold. There are lots of reasons to see it. I just you know, never got around to it yet. Number five, The Insider. Oh, that's a great one. It's a great one. So movie. good. I'm a big fan of The Insider. I think that's my favorite Michael Mann film, actually. Number four, L.A. Confidential. Terrific. Uh, my pick for the hottest Russell Crowe has ever been. <laughs> hey, Dan. Yeah. You look better than Veronica Lake. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Number three, The Nice Guys. <laughs> Daddy Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, he's well, great in A Beautiful Mind. Say, he what really you, uh, say what you will about the movie. He, I think, does give a really good performance. I agree. He is. I just don't think it's as good as a lot of the other ones that were lower. I think it's better than Benedict Cumberbatch in the Imitation Game. Well, I Definitely. mean, it, that doesn't take much. Yeah. And number one, no surprise, his name is Maximus Desmus Meridius, yeah. and it's Gladiator. Best performance by far. I I don't I don't know if I Gladiator. I think it's his best movie star performance, like just the screen presence, the command. You know what I mean? It compliments Julia Roberts um, for her win that year too, for in terms of movie star performances. Sure, I get that. I'm, I'm going to watch it again soon since I'm doing all the 2000 stuff. Uh, I love Gladiator so much. See, I, I've i never liked it. I've tried like three times. I really, I can't get behind it. I find it boring. 
I really I've heard, you know, it's so funny. I I don't know why, but I feel like Braveheart and Gladiator just get lumped together all the time. And I've never met anyone that liked one and not the other. You either love both or you hate both. And I think it's because I don't like they're Braveheart both so much. Yeah, I don't like Braveheart, but really a good time. But I feel like they're both like kind of catering towards that same like demographic of like, you know, male centric you know, historical revenge movie. Scott is a director and Mel Gibson is a director. Yeah. Like gladiator (laughs) is way less like (laughs) self serious about its themes and messages. Like I think the thing with gladiator that people just get annoyed by is that they don't like it being a best picture winner, but just in terms of a movie, it's very entertaining. Yeah. I remember Ebert loved Braveheart and hated Gladiator. If you watch yeah, the Gladiator he... review on YouTube, it's so funny because his co-host at the time, it was after Siskel had passed away, she loved it and was saying it was one of the most engrossing experiences she's ever had at a movie theater. And Ebert's like, what? What? Did we see the same movie? And then he goes, no, this is not even going to be an Oscar contender, let alone <laughs> you think he's going to win. And then they got to like the <laughs> predict the Oscars later in the year. And he goes, I, I don't even understand what's happening. It's like the Bohemian Rhapsody thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Roger was right. All right. Well, I disagree. <laughs> uh, this week's poll, we're asking everyone for the release of American Pickle on HBO Max this week, uh, which is their favorite Seth Rogen performance, which is interesting because, you know, for a very, very long time, I thought that Seth Rogen was always just playing a version of himself. I never really thought that he was stretching himself in terms of range. And I feel like there have been times where he's given really good performances, and I don't even know if he was even aware that he was given a good performance. Um, and I feel that way like with like Observe and Report, for example. And I look on it now, and I do feel like, you know, if you look at, for example, where he started back with something like, say, Knocked Up, and you compare that romantic lead performance to, say, Longshot, I do think that there has been a bit of an evolution with him. Uh, Maybe it's just he is more self-aware of what makes him who he is, or maybe it's also just experience, but I do feel like he has gotten better like over the years of breaking out of being cast as quote-unquote Seth Rogen, Mm -hmm. and he really is taking on more interesting parts. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I love him in Steve Jobs. Oh yeah, I think like that's probably his best acting, I would yeah. say. Yeah. And like it's very much a not not something that you would typically cast him in. But he brings he somehow makes it seem like really intuitive casting, which is really kind of interesting like he brings his essential seth rogan-ness to this part and that works really really well i still uh, always think of the line when he's walking away and he just says it's not binary you know it's like yeah he has a couple of really good moments in that i would say like performance wise i think it's his best but i think my favorite you know i i have to say i am very partial towards his bonkers off the wall committed performance in the night before yes oh lord no yeah he is on drugs in that movie and that performance is just wild uh from him i mean really more than anything he did in like pineapple express or um 
even like this is the end where he's playing a, a heightened version of himself. I just think that he is so outrageous in it. And I, I admire that he just went for broke with that one. I was going to say, like, this is the end. Maybe my favorite performance of I his. I was like, going to also <laughs> stick up for this is the end. Because I, I think we can all agree that probably, you know, Steve Jobs is the one that gave him respectability in terms of an actor. And that's probably going to win this poll. But just in terms of movies where I've actually just enjoyed his usual presence, I think this is the end is the one that finds that balance just right for me. And that whole movie, I think, is so funny. I just love that movie in general and everybody's performance, including Seth Rogen. I like Seth Rogen a lot. I, you know, love when he goes the more dramatic route like we were just talking about in Steve Jobs. But for me, my favorite performance of his is actually where it all started, I think, over on the film side. And that's knocked up. And I know it's not the most you know, hefty or dramatic of the roles, but just the overall presence that he has there and the charisma he brings to that character. I think it's part of why that movie works so well in conjunction with the Judd Apatow screenplay. To me, Judd Apatow makes the movies that James L. Brooks used to make back in the day. He works in that same style. And, you know, sort of the schlubby stoner who, you know, transforms in a way and becomes more of a functioning adult in the world. I think a lot of that is because of Seth's performance and I really find him very endearing in it. Like I, I, I echo a lot of what Michael said. I don't love Seth Rogen. Like even like looking at this list, I was like, I, I was like, I have to pick three. No, no, you could choose. You can choose up to three, but you don't have to. Well, I, I would say <laughs> knocked up is my favorite movie of his. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily attribute all that six, all like a lot of the movie success to him. Like Michael does. I think, there's a lot going on there that makes that movie work. Um, but I do slightly agree with you, Matt. Like there is definitely a change in him. I think it's subtle. And I think that there's, it's not as dramatic as you may maybe made it sound between knocked up to long shot. But um, I was, I was really impressed with him in um, long shot, more impressed with him as an actor and as a grown up than I was in years past. So yeah. And his chemistry of Charlize in that movie is just off the charts. Good. That's great. They work so well together. He does manage to have good chemistry uh, opposite these really serious, um, fierce women like Charlize and Catherine Heigl and, um, and knocked up. So that's one thing he is going for. And I also want to just give a shout out to an underseen movie, uh, which is probably the un- most unseth Rogen performance ever. And that's take this waltz. Um, oh, which you, if yeah. you guys have never seen that, it's like he almost feels out of place at times, but he somehow is able to make it work given what the screenplay is calling for him to do. And I can totally see why he was cast in that. But uh, that would, that is the movie that I would say is the very like the most un Seth Rogen Seth Rogen movie I've ever seen. <laughs> All right. Vote on the polls. Nextbestpicture.com. Cast a vote. Let us know. And now let's take a look at our second trailer for this week. This film premiered over at the Sundance Film Festival, which I had a chance to uh, check this one out. It is a new film from Miranda July, titled Kajillionaire, starring Evan Rachel Wood, Richard Jenkins, Deborah Winger, and Gina Rodriguez. Let's take a look at the trailer for this one. After this person. And clear. Now. There's a camera there, there, and there. Cash. Nope, many order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha ha ha, cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skip. So do I. February, March, April? Uh, we may have to pay in installments. Rent? 
is an installment. It's a monthly installment. They are real characters, super unique. But you vouch for them, right? She learned to forge before she learned to write. Well, actually, that's how she did learn to write. My favorite movies are the Ocean Eleven movies. This is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting. So what do your parents do, hon? Hon, you've never called me that. But you could if it was a job, though, right? You're addicted to them. They're my parents. In what sense? We split everything three ways. We have since I was little. I don't want to do it that way this time. Don't. So you want us to be false, faking people. We don't make pancakes or wrap up little birthday presents or call you sweetheart or baby or do a little dance. I always thought it was insulting to treat you like a child. And I thought we agreed on that. We can only ever be how we are. How is it I This is the way the big one starts. If you're lucky, you'll get crushed. And then you'll you just die right then and there. What was uh, the movie that she did that was narrated by the cast? What, wasn't there like a movie that started with like a cat narrating? It was really bizarre. I think, I think it was the future. part of it was, yeah, I think the future. Because I don't think uh, that was in me and you and everyone we know. Yeah, she makes very unique movies. And it doesn't surprise me that she and Mike Mills are a thing because they seem to work very well with their sensibilities. Uh, this looks like a Miranda July movie. And if you like that, this is a good thing. And if you don't like your sensibilities, maybe not. Um, I, <laughs> is there a reason Evan Rachel Wood is speaking like that? Okay. So <laughs> yes, I actually love Evan Rachel Wood in this movie. I think it's like actually from me, the best part of the movie and full disclosure, I was not as high on this as so many others were at Sundance. It might be maybe the greatest disparity of like any of the movies that I saw at the festival. Cause I see that it has like a 90 something on like rotten tomatoes. And I was definitely not that high on it. And, Kay- and Casey Lee Clark saw it too. And she really very much liked it. Uh, but we all agreed that Evan Rachel Wood was fantastic in it. And that is because the way that, Richard Jenkins and Deborah uh, Winger have raised her um, her whole life. It has made her uh, extremely socially awkward and quirky and really unable to kind of fit in with any of the other characters uh, like Gina Rodriguez, who gets brought into the story later on. I, I have to say, I love this cast. Yep. I like the cast. Um, I don't know if this trailer really sells me on the movie in general. It seems like it will be a very quirky movie, and sometimes that works, and sometimes that doesn't for me. Um, But I do like the people involved, so I am at least rooting for it. Yeah, the quirkiness did not work for me in this one, but there were a lot of people who did gravitate towards it. It it definitely has that hipster quirky indie sensibility not like in a wes anderson sort of way but uh casey lee clark compared it to something like ghost world for example Mm, i can see that 
I was not sold by the trailer. I was kind of bored watching the trailer. Like the only thing I really like was compelled by was um, Richard Jenkins' voice. And um, there was some interesting like cinematography that I thought was like some lighting that was cool and some framing. But other than that, like I really was not into it. Like it's very much in the Miranda July mold. And, you know, I've heard mixed reviews. We'll see, you know, once it finally drops. Yep. And it's supposed to drop on September 18th of this year from Focus Features. Oh, and also too, shout out to uh, composer Emil uh, Mazzari. I was just who about did to ask the, you, uh, Matt, how was the score? Yeah. Because it's the same composer of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Best score. I will just say that I preferred uh, his score to Minari more than Kajillionaire. Um, but... Still a great composer to watch out for uh, because the last Black Man in San Francisco score is oh, ah, so perfect. It's incredible. All right. Let's take a look at some other uh, film news that was announced uh, for this week. We uh, had some little tiny tidbits here and there, but one really big one that I want to focus on here. Universal and AMC theaters have reached a deal which will allow for films to transition to VOD much much earlier than the typical uh, 90 day window. It's actually going to be now. My Lord, I, I like I still can't believe this. Two weeks. Game changer. This is yeah. the natural progression. Welcome to the 21st century Universal and AMC. This is going to be changing how we see movies. It's not going to eliminate the theaters in one fell swoop. But, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see some of these movies that happen to disappear after two or three weeks in the theater. There's no going to there's not going to be waiting like three months anymore for it to show up. You're going to have it available to you at home two weeks later for probably a premium price. But still, you know, I think people are going to be very surprised how many audiences are willing to wait to see it at home than rush out to the theater. I want to just say really to a cor- correction really fast. Um, I know I said two weeks. It's really 17 days, which really two does equate to three weekends, basically. Um, yeah, essentially like two and a half. Uh, yeah. But still, regardless, you know, it's like the movies that you want to see in a movie theater. And let's let's all be kind of realistic with ourselves here. We typically see enough movies that we are watching them within the first two to three weekends of its release. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It's very, very rare that outside of that we'll then venture off to the theater unless if it is a limited release that's expanding. So the hardcore cinephiles are still going to get their opportunity to still see things in a theater if they want to. So to Michael's point, I don't think that this is going to kill the movie theater industry, but I do see it as a necessary change and adaptation that they need to make in order to stay alive, stay relevant, and kind of just put their egos aside to work together. And let me tell you, it has pissed off a lot of people. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why, especially at this point in time, right? I mean, there has to be some way for when theaters are able to reopen to accommodate for those people who are in areas where theaters can't be open, you know, or people who just don't feel comfortable and, you know, prize their health a little more and don't want to risk it. And I think this is very smart of them to announce it in advance of that happening. And I, (laughs) I don't know that other studios are going to follow suit, not for a while anyway, until they see how it actually works out. But remember that like a lot of movies, 
have still made money in theaters after they've been released on for home viewing. Also, too, international uh, releases, you know, so, 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 so important for a film to make its money back that it's not just the domestic release here in the States that is, you know, um, important for that to happen. And, you know, they also did mention that movies like F9, for example, which is coming out next year, um, will still be available to see in the movie theaters after the 17 yeah. days. They'll still keep it there. It just also will be available on demand, which, you know, kind of brings me back to conversations that, you know, we were having with Netflix um, a couple of years ago when a lot of people thought that when they started getting involved in the Oscar game, that having their films be, you know, streaming on their platform uh, with a simultaneous theater release was so detrimental. And it's all about just giving the consumer a choice. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's a choice. It's not about phasing one out. You know, um, the statement that was uh, provided here, uh, you know, w- with the uh, with the news release was um, Donna Langley, Universal's chairman, said the uh, theatrical experience continues to be the cornerstone of our business. The partnership that we forge with AMC is driven by our collective desire to ensure a thriving future for the film distribution ecosystem and to meet consumer demand with flexibility and optionality. That's it. And Matt, remind me, um, did they say whether that VOD release 17 days after was going to be via AMC or if it was a more general um, release. What do you mean by, you mean like through an app? Like yeah. controlled by AMC? No, no, no. I think it's PVOD and AMC is going to get a cut of the profits that are generated from that. Okay, there you go. Because AMC does have an on-demand app. Yeah, they yeah. do. I'm sure it'll be on there too. Yeah, but I mean, I think that I think we've seen throughout quarantine the most efficient way uh, to release something on demand is to not limit it to one app, but you know, have it available yeah, for streaming on an Apple TV, a Roku, or whatever. You know. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, and I think this is just you know, with the way things are going, the natural next step to throw theaters a life preserver and say, "Hey, we see that you still need to survive." This is how we're going to do it because people are looking at the future and seeing that we could be doing things differently. Mm. So there's room for everyone to exist. It's just going to look different than it was in January or February. And this is a far cry from the extreme point of view that theaters will close down and theatrical viewing will die. You know what I mean? Like that. I am so firmly against, and that has been something yeah. that for years has been talked about on this very podcast by some of our members here, and I've been very, very much against that. I'm not against a choice, especially if it means that certain movies, and I'm not talking about these big movies, but certain smaller movies, will have a chance to actually get seen by people, because if Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and all these other uh, studios that have streaming capabilities have shown us, especially during this time when we're all at home, it's that people will watch smaller movies. They will. (laughs) You know, they just didn't want to leave their homes necessarily to go do it. Well, they've proven that cinephiles will. I don't know that it's proven that any more or less general audiences will um, because, you know, we don't know what any of these grosses are for any of these movies. Yeah, I think for general audiences, there's still kind of a question mark. And I also think that for those audiences, theatrical presentation is still somewhat necessary because when you talk about some of these movies where they did say, oh, we've had such great success on demand, 
most of them were films that were already committed to a theatrical release to begin with and already had that kind of exposure to people. So mm-hmm. I still think that there is a world for movies playing in theaters to do very well. And it's kind of actually necessary for them to do well. But that partnership between theatrical and digital uh, exhibition is what's changing right now. And I think it's changing for the better. It's not, as we said, completely eliminating one over the other, but it is refocusing things, which is necessary right now. All right. Bursts. Bursts of information. Here we go. Tenet will be seen first internationally before the United States. And the chances of us getting uh, leaked information via Reddit or accidentally seeing something on Twitter is very, very likely. It's what we well, deserve. you know we deserve it. Yep. <laughs> yep. August 26th, 70 international markets. September 3rd for us. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't hold that date in any I regard. Uh, Pixar announces new original film, Luca, which shockingly uh, looked very much like Call Me By Your Name in animated form. I can't get that out of my head since I saw somebody <laughs> post something of that. <laughs> but it's a coming of age movie set in Italy. And uh, we know that Enrico uh, Casarosa, uh, who did uh, La Luna, is uh, set to direct a film. And, you know, it was just, you know, just simple information. No trailer, nothing like that. Uh, just an announcement, really. Always excited for a new Pixar. Seriously. Yeah, I just hope that people don't accuse this of queer baiting by giving it that name and being so similar in look to Call Me By Your Name, because I feel like that is... <laughs> it's a really tenuous connection to make. Yeah. I don't I don't blame you for that. And I do sort of think it's deliberate. <sighs> but at the same time, like, <laughs> Call Me By Your Name is a movie that nobody outside of film Twitter has heard of. Yeah. I, I agree with that, too. Yeah. I like that movie. But let's be real about what the exact popularity of that movie is. Right. Yes, please. No, it was just a joke that it's from called Luca, Luca Guadagnino. Exactly. In Italy, summer. You know, it was just a funny little yeah. connection that no one's taken seriously. At least yeah, I hope I, There are people taking it seriously, though. Well, they need to wake up. <laughs> well, speaking of Luca Guadagnino, he is set to direct uh, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood from a script written by guess who? Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It centers on Scotty Bowers, a World War II veteran who became a legendary bisexual male hustler and date arranger for gay movie stars in the 1940s. This sounds interesting. That's a great story. Dylan McDermott played a version of him on Hollywood and just got an Emmy nomination. So people sort of have an idea of who Scotty Bowers was. So to get this feature-length film about him, I think, is really, really interesting. I can't wait to see There's it. also a really, really great documentary uh, about it, too, as well, that uh, Tom O'Brien reviewed for the site last year. Yeah, I saw that documentary, too. It's very yeah. good. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always, you know, with stuff like that, it's always a how true is it really? But the thing, it's a very interesting a combo of writing team and director and I don't, I don't know, know that I trust one half of that and I'll leave that half up to y'all to <laughs> Tom Cruise, Doug Lyman, Elon Musk putting on their spacesuits, 200 million dollars, their next project will be filmed in space. Christopher McQuarrie has joined the project as a producer and Guys, I mean, we all knew Tom Cruise was going to go to space before the Fast and the Furious crew, right? It was inevitable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Are they going to leave him there? 
And the Oscar goes to Amy Adams in Night Bitch, a dark comedy about a woman who, after giving up her career to become a stay-at-home mother, starts to think she is turning into a dog. Annapurna is going to be producing this one. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this one? I'm I'm along for the ride. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't really know what to make of it. Um, at first, whenever I saw the first couple of tweets about it, I thought it was a joke. Um, but <laughs> So did I. You know, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I love Annapurna and I love Amy Adams and yeah, just take me there. So, is this going to be like the movie Wolf? Any money, but... <laughs> I feel like this is going to be... <sighs> Guys, hear me out. <laughs> I have a feeling that this really would be Amy Adams' Oscar-winning role simply because... Just hear me out. How many times have we seen time and time again where it's like they won the Oscar for that when they should have given it to them for this, 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 you know? And on paper, this just reads Oscar winner in the modern age of what the Academy considers an Oscar winner, but not necessarily the film Twitter critics cinephile circles. You know what I mean? How funny is it that we had it in our mind that, like, Glenn Close and Amy Adams would win for, like, you know, regal movies like American Hustle or The Wife, and now it's Hillbilly Elegy and Night Bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It just hurts me so bad inside sometimes. Um, I don't know. This sounds like a weirder movie than something the Academy would ever really look at. See, that's my problem with it. Like, it sounds like it's like, okay, like, whenever Matt was just talking, like, I'm like following it like three-fourths of the way through that he mentions dog and i'm just like ugh, you know like i don't know i that's why i'm like okay we should just like go along for the ride see where it takes us but i'm not like i'm not like writing amy's acceptance speech for her right now joker got 11 nominations and one best actor i'm just saying or this could be her butter, her butterfield eight moment <laughs> god <laughs> get a tricky out of me Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho uh, has resumed production. Uh, On-set locations have been scrapped. Uh, Remaining scenes will be shot on a soundstage. And the film is scheduled for release April 23rd, 2021. Missing the Oscar eligibility window. So uh, we can probably expect not to see uh, Oscar nominee Edgar Wright uh, anytime soon with that kind of a release. But... Still something to look forward to next year, regardless. I'm all about 2021 announcements at this mm. point because I'm very, very worried about what the slate looks like for next year. So, And Ryan, because you're here on the show, Courtney Cox, David Arquette are set to reprise their roles as Gail Weathers and Dewey Riley in the upcoming Screen 5. Nev Campbell still hasn't been announced yet. Honestly, it's I'm pretty surprised that, um, that Nev wasn't announced before Courtney because... Courtney actually makes like twice of what what Nev makes. At least she has for Scream Three and Scream Four. Um, and Nev was kind of announced. She did some interviews back um, a few months ago where she announced that she was in talks. So I'm just surprised that we hear about Courtney first um, before Nev. Um, and to be honest, I also like am like taking a deep sigh of relief knowing that she's on board because she wasn't she wasn't like super thrilled about doing Scream Four. She was also going through her separation from David Arquette um, during it. So I'm happy she's back. Um, I'm not like, if I'm being completely honest, I don't think Scream 5 is going to be anything great. I think it, it, I, I'm excited for it as a fan, but I'm not um, anticipating it's going to be anything better than what we got with Scream 4, um, especially with the, um, there was some character news um, that was announced a few weeks ago. 
And it's like, eh, I, I'm not sure how this is all going to play out, but we'll see. Universal uh, Pictures has announced uh, that Issa Rae, Jordan Peele, will be joining forces for the supernatural film Sinkhole, which is adapted from a Lena Crow short story of the same name. It's a thought-provoking genre film that engages with questions of female perfection and identity. Uh, there has been no announcement yet if this is Jordan Peele's um, directorial, next directorial gig or if he's just simply producing. Uh, Issa Rae could be producing. She could be the star. But it's exciting that the two are working together and Jordan Peele just continues to use his clout to bring about these really, really interesting projects that sound uh, really exciting on paper. Filmmakers adapt more short stories and less novels. I like that. Yeah. And finally... First details of Ben Wheatley's Rebecca were revealed this week. Uh, Ben Wheatley, director of High Rise, Free Fire. Uh, This is an adaptation of the 1938 novel uh, by Daphne uh, du Maurier, which we did a um, podcast uh, review of for Next Best Adaptation uh, previously. Uh, This is not going to be a straight remake of the Alfred Hitchcock Best Picture winning film. Uh, The movie is starring Lily James, Army Hammer, Kristen Scott Thomas, And there was an exclusive uh, with some photos that were released uh, giving us our first look at the movie. But I would tell you all right now, with Netflix behind it, regardless of the film's quality, I think we got to consider this for production design and costumes right off the bat. Yep. Oh, yeah. I'm just excited to see Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, like, I'm very excited for them to be sticking a little closer to the novel than um, than Hitchcock's film did. I think that given that opportunity in today's day and age, that's very smart to take it. Uh, There's a lot in that book that they couldn't touch in 1940. And I, I don't know that it will necessarily make the film better but it there's definitely a lot to add and i'm looking forward to it you know even though the original rebecca is great and obviously a best picture winner i wonder if this is going to be like the uh carrie fukunaga jane Eyre compared to the orson wells uh and i'm blanking on who played jane Eyre in the 40s version uh but the 1940s version Uh, i wonder if this is going to be like a more gothic deeper darker look at rebecca which i'm all for because that carrie fukunaga jane Eyre is phenomenal was a quiet place inspired by signs it comes at night in war for the planet of the apes was ready player one influenced by avatar wreck it ralph and the last starfighter is a hurricane heist more influenced by sharknado or geostorm these are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and i discuss on my podcast piecing it together every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it whether it's the story the character development tone or even use of music every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what check out piecing it together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com you can also follow us on social media at piecingpod piecing it together is a part of the all points west podcast network all right and let's take it home with fan questions for this week here jeffrey care asks thoughts on the recently deceased filmmaker alan parker he was great he was really one of a kind you know never made the same movie always no. working in different styles you know you go from Bugsy Malone to shoot the moon and Evita and fame of course you know he was really terrific and if you've never seen Bugsy Malone that movie is a trip I highly encourage yeah. you to check it out mm-hmm. Scott Bayo aside and two that you didn't mention there um, Mississippi Burning and Midnight Express yes. uh, as well he, he was probably runner yeah, up in Midnight Express. Burning at the Oscars he was yeah right I wouldn't there. be surprised by that 
Also, too, Pink Floyd, The Wall, hugely influential. Yeah, he, he was one of the great British directors, and he'll be sorely missed. He hadn't worked in a while, but, you know, just a legend, and we're going to miss him. Yeah. Mm. And if you can see Angel Heart, I highly recommend oh, it. <laughs> the movie is nutty. It <laughs> is, and it's a wild time. <laughs> Actor Wilford uh, Brimley uh, died today. Um, we are asked uh, by Richard Houlihan uh, which role of his that we were uh, most fond of. Uh, he particularly liked him in Kevin Cl- as Kevin Klein's father in Frank Oz's comedy In and Out. Yeah, In and Out is yeah. really funny. Yeah, he's delightful in that. I love him in Cocoon. Oh yeah, yeah. Cocoon is great. Everyone likes yeah. to point out he's younger than Tom Cruise is now than when, when he did Cocoon. <laughs> I think for me, whenever I think of Wilford Brimley, the number one thing that comes to mind is the thing. Yeah, yeah, I have to concur. I like Absence of Mallets. Oscar H. Hmm? says, the latest film in your 2014 retrospective was Interstellar. Many think it's one of Nolan's most underappreciated films. What films from your favorite filmmakers do you think are underrated and they deserve more recognition? That's a good question. Yes, so pick a favorite filmmaker and which film of theirs do you think deserves more recognition and is considered underrated? I'll go. Um, David O. Russell, Joy. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> That's a good one. I didn't have to On brand. It. On brand. Um, okay, I think I have an answer. So hard. it is very difficult, but it's a very good question. Um, I love the Coen brothers, and I feel like they have made just like one bad movie and two movies I just feel like are okay, but the rest of them I think are good to excellent. And one of those in that good to excellent range, more on the good side, for me is Intolerable Cruelty, which is a movie of theirs that I know a lot of people (laughs) don't like very much, but I actually think that it tries to basically take the 1930s screwball comedy and apply it with a modern uh, perspective to some degree of success. Um, It's not completely good. And I would certainly not rank it in like the higher echelon of their work, but I really do like that movie. I think it's very fun and sweet. And um, it's one of theirs that I know a lot of people don't really like, but I actually do have uh, a fondness for that film. I I am kind of with you on that, Josh. I, the, I don't think it's a great movie, but I, it makes me laugh a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite filmmakers is David Fincher, and I think actually um, one of his movies that didn't get really any awards love or has always been kind of underrated in his filmography is Panic Room. I think that that is a really tight, well-constructed thriller. And... I'm not saying it's high art or anything like that necessarily, but I do think it always kind of gets kind of brushed under the rug sometimes as being like lower tier Fincher uh, when really it exhibits the same degree of control and detail that he brings to all of his other movies. It's not sloppy or a bad movie in any way. It's just a B level thriller that has a master behind the camera. That's a great answer, Matt. I love that movie. Mm hmm. So I really love, for one of my favorite filmmakers, a movie that people you know usually put in the quote-unquote garbage heap of his filmography, but I, I'm very fond of it, and that is for Steven Spielberg, The Terminal. I think uh, how it sort of fits into this post-9-11 world, it's sort of like a trilogy in a way between that War of the Worlds in Munich and just presenting you know this look at America post-2001, but also the technical craft of it, how they rebuild this airport. It's like, 
Jacques Tati meets uh, Billy Wilder with this romance uh, between Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones and the bureaucracy that he runs into at the airport and, you know, this character who's stranded there, just everything that he goes through and you follow his journey. I think it's really well done and I really respond to that movie quite a bit. Um, So I don't know that Richard Linklater is one of my favorite filmmakers, but I do like a lot of his work and (laughs) I don't think a lot of people have give a uh, school of rock the level of respect that it deserves. Oh my god, I was just watching that the other night. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's so good. It easily Jack Black's best performance. Yes. It's just it it moves so well and the kids are so good and it's just delightful from start to finish and the, it's a movie that I cannot really find anything wrong with. I think it's such a commercial movie and did so well for like a young demographic and brought in all this money at the box office that people sometimes forget that it's a Richard Linklater movie. It was like this big commercial hit outside of the wheelhouse of before and, you know, his more independent titles. Yeah, it was definitely like, you know, a director for hire gig, but like he still brings a lot of personality to it. And he it it was clearly like he wasn't just making it to make a buck. Like it's clear that he enjoyed making it in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you watch it's great. Joan Cusack and is great in that. She, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, she makes my lineup that year for best supporting. She's actor. so funny in that. She's very funny. Uh, Scott Kernan, with the announcement of the TIFF lineup and the rather noticeable absence of high profile Oscar contenders, is there a chance that only a few, say Tenet and West Side Story specifically? will be entirely theatrical and everyone else will have a somewhat hybrid VOD release delay. Uh, I think that that is probably going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a very likely scenario. Yeah, I don't know why some folks thought that things like Wonder Woman or Black Widow might appear at the film festivals. I just like, yeah, and I and I kind of count things like Tenet and West Side Story in that, in that they're big studio commercial movies. They're not the, that, that, that maybe the, their first priority is to make money. They're, the, it, it's not to win awards. Mm-hmm. Totally. I'm glad that the festivals are sticking true to their identity in that regard. So I'm happy about that. Cause I do think that if you had something on that level playing at one of those festivals, like specifically uh tenant, for example, it would just be distracting to everything else. Yeah. This one comes from that CM guy, 1988. Yesterday, Josh Parham tweeted about uh, Siraj Shawarma, uh, who was supposed to be a breakout star after Life of Pi. Still to this day, he's nowhere to be found in any acclaimed project, and a lot of people claimed him uh, to be the diet version of Dev Patel, which makes me quite sad, actually. So which actor or actress uh, that was supposed to have a great career after a big hit project suddenly disappeared from the industry for you? Eller Coltrane. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I just thought of the circle like all over again, and it hurts. Boy. <laughs> Didn't even see it. Oh, that's a good one, though. Uh, well, if I can name somebody outside of the example that was just brought up from what I tweeted yesterday, um, I mean, this isn't a big movie, but I thought that it was a pretty big breakout role for this actor. Um, and it actually coincides with our 2014 retrospective, and it's Jack O'Connell for Startup. 
I thought that was a really like defining moment for him in his career. And it seemed like he got a lot of great notices and it felt like it was going to be a big jumping off point that just never really happened. And I'm kind of sad about that because he's so good in that movie and he just hasn't really had a project come around that has delivered on that promise. I'm going to say Belle Powley for Diary of a Teenage Girl. It's a good one. Yeah. I, especially since like she was such a terrific scene stealer in King of Staten Island this year that I wanted it to be renamed Queen of Staten Island and be about her. Like, where is her movie? I'm having a hard time like thinking of this, actually. I don't know why. Yeah. You know what? I'm looking I... at, Matt. There's a list for the Critics' Choice Award for Best Young Performer. Oh, that's a good place to look. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going through. Here's a great one. She got a Golden Globe nomination and then won the Critics' Choice back in 2007. None other than Nikki Blonsky. Yes. Oh, yeah. There are some people on here. It's like, wow, you really did not take off. Others are like, oh, well, now you're a superstar. Like Haley Steinfeld for True Grit. Right, right. made a huge after that. But others are like, well, you won that. Thomas Horn from Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Remember he was the thing? Yo, that kid from Incredibly Loud, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Like, that's a good one. I actually, yes, I agree. I don't know what the hell happened there. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Wow. That's bad. <laughs> Tony Revolori from Grand Budapest Hotel. He's he in the Spider-Man in movies. Spider-Man. Oh, whatever. Nice That's patient. nothing. Oh, I have one, and this uh, this is one that Josh, I think, will appreciate a little bit. Um, Max Records from Where the Wild Things Are. Oh. Yeah. 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 Sorry, even May. Uh, we're going to actually uh, push yours off till uh, next week. Uh, this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit quicker. Uh, Sam J. Peck. Wants us to do a game of this or that. Which do you prefer between the two? I'm going to say them really quickly. Not going to give you a moment to think about it. Here we go. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Jurassic Park or E.T.? E.T. Jurassic Park. (laughs) E.T. Infinity War or Endgame? Endgame. 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 Abstain. It's an ending, so therefore yeah. it wins. The Godfather or Goodfellas? Goodfellas. Godfather. Godfather. Goodfellas. Oof. Oh, okay. Wow. This is interesting. Parasite or Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Parasite. No! Parasite. Don't do this. Parasite. I love both, but I'm going to say Portrait. Um... I oh, both. I, I, I refuse. <laughs> I refuse. All right. That'll do it here for this week on episode 205 of the Next Best Picture podcast. Anybody have anything to say before we go? Wear a mask. Yeah, wear your damn masks. And keep watching good movies. Mm. All right. Josh Parham, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. Michael Schwartz. On Twitter at MSchwartz95. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Ryan C. Showers. You can find me at RCS818 on Twitter. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 205 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate the feedback, the support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us, including our 2014 retrospective reviews. We have three left. Uh, They are some big, heavy hitters. We've got... Boyhood, Birdman, and Gone Girl remaining for our 2014 retrospective 
and the voting for the nominations for the MVP Film Community Awards for 2014 are still going. They are ending on August 15th, which gives you all approximately 13 days to fill that out and get it submitted in. If you want to shape how 2014 looked for you, please, by all means, submit a ballot. I know it's long. I understand that. We try to be comprehensive and we try to cover a lot of different uh, topics and areas so that no stone is left unturned, but it gives us quite a bit of fun. And come on, let's face it. It's the pandemic. What are you really doing during this time anyway? So join us in that. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.